A quick warning. The following episode contains some depictions of violence and the sound of gunshots. In the house where I grew up, there's this media cabinet. It's got a glass door, so you can see everything inside. It was always messy. My parents' Motown cassette tapes and soul CDs. We had a collection of VHS tapes, mostly TV recordings, like the series finale of Seinfeld, which for nine-year-old me was a momentous event. But there was one tape I wasn't allowed to watch. It had a label on its spine, written in marker, that said, Riot. I knew my Uncle Galen had something to do with this movie. I assumed he had a small part in it as an actor. I really wanted to see it, but as I remember it, my parents wouldn't let me. They told me it had a lot of curse words, that it wasn't for kids. But years later in middle school, I asked again, and this time, my parents said yes. Riot takes place on the day the 1992 LA riot started, when four LAPD officers were acquitted in the beating of Rodney King. As soon as the verdict came out, unrest broke out all over the city. The movie is told in four parts. Each chapter follows a character of a different race, black, white, Latine, and Asian. It made a lasting impression on me, especially the structure, how throughout the movie, characters from different chapters would cross paths with each other. And yeah, there was a lot of cursing. But what I remember most about Riot was that it was one of the first movies I'd ever sat through that felt hard to watch. Not because it was bad, like Crazy Six, but because the characters felt so real, each one struggling with a different inner conflict. Let's see here. The whole idea for Riot actually came from a producer named Harry Weiner. He's worked on shows like Dawson's Creek, Alias, and Veronica Mars. Back in 1995, Harry was making a lot of TV movies, and he had a new project for Showtime. Hi, all of you. Hi. Hi, Harry. This is very surreal. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Maya, I look forward to speaking to you about Galen. Such full circle here. Harry's plan for Riot was pretty radical at the time. He wanted to hire four different writers who would each direct their own chapters. I wanted authentic voices, people who would understand from within their own communities what a good story to tell might look like. Not surprisingly, it was easy for Harry to find a white writer. He said it wasn't too difficult to find a black writer. He did have a pretty hard time looking for a Latine writer. I couldn't find anybody who even represented an Asian-American writer. And then somebody recommended your uncle, Galen Ewan. So they sent me a script, and this script is a feature script that he had written, had such raw power and action that rang so true because it was action in the streets that felt as if it was a life lived and not somebody's idea of big Hollywood action. Of course, Harry's talking about it's all in the game, the script that eventually became Crazy Six. Out of everyone I've talked to, Harry's the one guy who read Galen's screenplay and saw the same thing I did. Instantly, Harry wanted to meet the person behind it. So then in walks your uncle, Galen Ewan. 
And here's this diminutive, emaciated looking man with tats. And the first thought that I had was, this is a man who's lived a troubled life. And he shared with me some of his life experiences. And he talked about being involved in a gang in Oakland, California. And he talked about heroin and drug trade. And I said, listen, you know, if you can just speak from that place of honesty and your life experience, you're golden. Let's do this together. When I first got the box of my Uncle Galen's screenplays, I zeroed in on the one with the most intriguing cover page. The majority of the incidents and characters of the story are real. Their names have been changed to protect the guilty. But when I started to look beyond that script, I found out my uncle was injecting himself into everything he wrote, as if he was trying to make sense of his life on the streets and how much it cost his family. All this became clear to me when I finally spent some time with the movie I wasn't allowed to watch as a kid, Riot. I'm Maya Lynn Sugarman. This is Magnificent Jerk, the true story of a fake story about a real life. Episode 6, Chasing the Dream. It was the fall of 1995, just three years since the uprising took place in L.A. And the movie Riot was moving forward. Harry organized a writer's retreat at this fancy resort in Santa Barbara. Now, when I say fancy, it's where Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee exchanged wedding vows. John and Jackie Kennedy honeymooned there. It sits on 550 acres of land. You get your own bungalow-style cottage with a stone fireplace. And your uncle was the first (laughs) to comment on the fact that he'd never been to a place like that. It was just the first taste of the opportunities that lay ahead for him. Galen's chapter in Riot is about a teenager named Jeff Lee. His parents own a liquor store, their first generation. They keep their heads down and run the business. Jeff's frustrated by that. He wants a better life for them, And he believes the way to get that is to go out and grab it. He's one of the only Asian kids in a mostly Black and Latina neighborhood. He wants to fit in. He wants to be taken seriously. So he acts tough and curses a lot. For me, it was cool because it was like the first character that was like, just us. Dante Bosco is an actor and director. At 16, he got famous playing Rufio, the leader of the Lost Boys, and Steven Spielberg's Hook. Boil dripping, beef fart sniffing, bubble butt. Six years later, he landed the lead role in Galen's chapter of Riot. It was a part that felt personal to Dante. He's from the Bay Area, but moved to Southeast LA in middle school. And he remembers living through the LA riots. It was like smoke in our front yard, like from the fires, you know, driving through the city burning kind of thing. And we were still young, we were teenagers, so it was like we weren't out, out there in the streets, but we, you know, it was prevalent. By the mid-90s, Dante was auditioning a lot and having to deal with lots of racist stereotypes with roles like Chinese boy, ping pong, and trash number two. But when he picked up Galen's script, 
Jeff Lee was a part he'd never seen before. This depicted Asians that were in the hood. There wasn't any roles like that. There's, a, there's an authenticity that I think Galen wanted. And I was like, yo, I come from the neighborhood. Like, these gangsters, b-boys, rapper, like, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm curious, what was your approach then to the character because you felt so much connected to it? No, I just I felt free, you know, like, oh, let's go. Like, and the, and the, ang- the anger and the rage of, like, you know, it's hard to grow up in the hood. We're dealing with life and death issues. There's guns. There's people getting killed. There's drugs. There's people trying to make money. And it's hard. One of my biggest memories of, of Riot was like, uh, they didn't have a lot of money, you know? And they didn't have money for rehearsals. But Galen wanted to make sure Dante and the other actors were ready. So he came to them with an idea. We're like, we're actors. Like, yeah, we want to rehearse. Because it's a heavy movie, too. This is not like just some fun jokes. This is like, we are doing something that kind of never has been done on cinema. So he's like, I can't afford to pay you. We're like, for the rehearsals. Like, okay. He goes, but I could take you to dinner. And so we would we would do the scenes, rehearse, and he would, you know. And he's he would push you. He is not, there was not anything easy about it. We were tackling hard material and... He would ask hard questions and especially push me in certain ways to get what he what he envisioned or, you know, get me to feel a certain thing. And and then after we worked for a few hours, he would take us to get food in Chinatown. In L.A. Chinatown? L.A. Chinatown. Do you know where? No, because there were always secret spots. This is the deal. We would always go to some place and then we'd go in there and then you'd pass the people and then we'd go into some back room and they all speak in like Mandarin. Then we'd have a gang of food. Dope. Amazing. Like the best food ever. You know what I'm saying? And we were always like, what the? Where are we? Like, what the fuck is going on here? You know? Did yeah. he like know the people there? I don't he, know what yeah, was popping off. he had off. an in. Of course he had an in. <laughs> He's a Chinese gangster. You know what I'm saying? Like the gold, 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 gold. Not the 14 karat gold. Like he got like the real, you know, the 18, 24 karat gold. In February 1996, shooting for Riot started on location in L.A. And Galen was having the time of his life in the director's chair. Need anything else from the store? I remember there was a moment when there was a a scene in a car where the characters that he had created were driving down the street and having a conversation. Yeah, you're always fucking around, Phil. You know, we're like, we're Asians in the hood running around in a drop top, you know, classic car. Like, we was killing it. And for this scene, they had to get a car tow. Basically, Dante wasn't actually driving the convertible in the shot. A truck was towing it. And in order to be able to film a moving vehicle, you have to have a police escort. And so Galen, who's sitting on the high part of the truck looks around and he starts beaming and I say well what's going on for you and he says this is the first time in my life where I get a chance to tell the cops what to do instead of them telling me what to do yeah I remember that really I do remember that what do you how do you no I just remember him saying that really yeah because let me tell you something he's from the hood you know I've been sitting on that curb like a lot of people I've Got down the car, I got checked, I got frisked. I mean, we've been hassled a lot growing up. 
I want to point out something complicated about this story. In Galen's chapter of Riot, the fictional Lee family is Chinese-American. In real life, most of the Asian-Americans involved in the uprising were Korean-American. So why hire a Chinese-American to write this story? My take on it is there wasn't much delineation between nationalities in Hollywood back then. It was all just Asian. But I do think Galen was making references to real-life events that happened during the L.A. riots. Leading up to the 1992 uprising, for many different reasons, tensions have been growing between Black and Korean-American communities. Galen's story opens in the liquor store. Dante's character, Jeff Lee, watches as a Black customer confronts his father. Fuck you, Buddhahead. Chinese motherfucker. Yeah, I'm sorry. Please, we're very sorry. This pisses Jeff off. He vents about it to his mother. I'm sick of the way he lets these fools walk all over us. This is the toe hold on our dream, Jeffrey. This is not a dream, it's a nightmare. I watched Galen work. He was mostly with Dante trying to get the energy that he needed. So just watching him navigate through that, the, the humility and, 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 you know, Dante's character is mad. David Clark Johnson was one of Galen's fellow writer-directors on Riot. He'd written a few episodes of Sesame Street and just finished a feature film, executive produced by Spike Lee. David especially remembers watching Galen direct the climactic scenes when looters start breaking into the family store and Jeff single-handedly tries to fight them off. You could see him getting Dante to the point where he's fighting, and I thought that that was a great performance from Dante. A looter is about to smash a television on Jeff's head when a gunshot rings out. The man falls to the ground, and the camera cuts to Jeff's father, holding the gun. Jeff is in shock. I think that if you see it, it'll touch you, you know, whether it makes you mad or whatever it does. I don't think you can watch it and not have an opinion. And I think that was the idea. I have to imagine Galen was referencing a real-life shooting that took place in 1991, when a Korean-American liquor store owner in South Central shot and killed a 15-year-old Black girl named Latasha Harlins. But what happens next in my uncle's story feels like it's drawn from his own life. After the shooting, Jeff's father pushes his son out of the store to protect him from the chaos inside. He tries to get back in, banging on the door. Dad, open up! But the store suddenly explodes in flames. His father is dead. Jeff runs to the front of the store, trying to get inside, but it's too dangerous. His mother comes to him. She holds him, tries to calm him down. Jeff says something like, you are wrong about the American dream. It's a lie. Jeffrey, please, he told to your father. Show him respite. I'll get out for my father. But after this day, we don't bet for anyone. 
Then they turn towards the store, shoulder to shoulder. And together, they bow three times. There's a part of him in that character. So I'm, I'm his conduit. I'm almost his voice. You know what I'm saying? When directors are working with their lead actors, it's like, that's you. I've always wondered um, why my uncle chose to have your father die in the convenience store because my uncle's father died when really? he was really young. Um, and it's kind of like a through line I've seen. Um, it also was in the original script. It's all in the game. So I'm curious if you ever talked about that with you. No, I don't, we never talked about that, but it doesn't surprise me. I think as a filmmaker, you're supposed to make things as personal as possible because you know. You yeah. know that. You know yeah. it. You know what it feels like. You know what it's supposed to feel like. You know what it kind of looks like. You, you're there. So it doesn't surprise me at all that he would tap into his own experience. He was that, like I said, he's a soulful dude. He was that kind of guy. After talking to Dante about Riot, I started to wonder about the ways Galen might have put himself into his other scripts. When I looked back at that interview he once gave to Asian Week in 1994, I thought more about why he started to write in the first place. You've accomplished a lot in your relatively short time in Hollywood. I'm sure your parents must be impressed from being a gang leader to writing big budget films. <laughs> They're not actually. Well, my mom isn't. And my dad, well, he passed away when I was seven. So I'm not sure how he'd feel. That must have been hard to lose your dad at such a young age. He had high hopes for me. I think he wanted me to be a good person. But I haven't been able to go to his grave because I feel like instead of healing people the way he wanted, I've hurt them. I needed to go back to that box. This time, I wouldn't pick apart each individual story. I was going to look for what Galen repeats over and over and over again across all his screenplays. There are five original feature film scripts inside, including It's All in the Game. Most have an Asian male lead. And as I flip through, almost all of them have some sort of funeral scene for a father. Exterior, Rosedale Cemetery. A hearse and two dozen limousines are parked in the sprawling, immaculately groomed cemetery. The details are different each time. One's a father figure, one's a stepfather. Interior. Soong Yi Cathay Funeral Home. Bobby has been trying to avoid looking at the two caskets. His eyes finally go to Sandy's casket, then the stepfather's. Bobby forces himself to bow three times to the stepfather. But what's always the same is that a family is left broken, and a grieving mother can't speak to her troubled son. There's a script called Keep Your Head to the Sky about a former watching member who's just gotten out of jail. His mother's disowned him, and he's trying to make amends. Interior, Weenluck Garment Factory, day. Bobby sees his mother exiting the back door of the sweatshop. He's nervous and doesn't know quite what to say. Bobby meets her halfway. How are you, Ma? I can't stay too long. I have to get back. Ma... I know I've caused you a lot of pain. 
I want to start all over again. Be a part of the family. You're not part of our family. I have to get back. Is that how you really feel? Yes. You're not part of our family. The more I read of my uncle's writing, the more I started to realize how much of it was Galen trying to get through to Papa, the woman I sat beside on the last full day of her life, who had all these scripts sitting in her closet, unread for decades. She was the one at the center of all my uncle's work. How much do you think being raised by a single mother affected who you are today? You must wish things had been different with her. I love my mom. I think I need to tell her that I love her. And it would mean a lot for me for my mom to say, hey, I love you and I'm proud of you. Hmm. I'm still trying to find myself. I still have a lot of anger within me, but I'm Chinese and can't be like that. My anger hurts other people. I don't want to blame society, my parents, or other Asians. And the only way I can let go of this anger is through film. I don't know if working is going to do it. I don't know if I belong in this world. But maybe human beings are overly complicated. Anyway, if you're honest, people will hear your voice. And maybe other people can avoid my mistakes. When Riot came out in 1997, Galen's career was taking off. He had a directorial debut and three back-to-back writing credits in just three years. But it turned out, Riot was the peak. It was the only project he directed and the last script he ever got made. I still have a hard time making sense of what happened, and I can't help but want someone or something to blame. If you piss somebody off, if you say something, you know, you never know, man. You, you, you never know. You never know. It is a huge balancing act. I asked David Clark Johnson, one of the other writer-directors for Riot, why he thinks my uncle's career as a writer and director didn't pan out. I mean, Galen didn't strike me as the type of guy that was going to take too much nonsense. He just didn't strike me as that dude. I can hear him telling somebody to take a walk. Um... I can see that. Do you think my uncle stood in his own way? If I may be so bold, bruh. I think we, we both can stand in our own way. If you have a principle that you don't want to move off of, if you want to call that standing in your own way from one perspective, yeah, I guess it is. But if at the end of the day you, you feel better about your choice, then you can take solace in that. You know what I mean? David told me, Getting movies made in Hollywood means making compromises. And he thinks Galen probably hit a point in his career when he wasn't willing to do that anymore. After Crazy Six, I can only imagine, like I said, I didn't watch that trailer, but seeing how that was cast (laughs) says it all. Rob Lowe? Rob Lowe is your lead gangster? Come on, man. That's a comedy waiting to be seen. Ice T? They're not believable as, Come on, as drug dealers or, or gangsters. It. The whole thing is crazy. But that should, if, if nothing else I said here sticks, that should show you exactly what I'm talking about in terms of what got the movie made.
there was a time when David decided there were compromises he wasn't willing to make. When a producer approached him to remake Stand By Me into a story about black kids in Baltimore. Thought to myself, man, if I could do that about six young brothers in Baltimore in the 60s, I'm in. I got that story. So I go in and I'm talking to the dude and he's, he, set, he just set it up so perfectly. It's like, well, yeah, it's a, we want to remake that. Yeah. So you got, you got six young men, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Three are Crips, three are Bloods. I was through. It just, I was through. I was ready to leave then. I didn't hear a word he said after that. And I'm sure he talked for another 45 minutes. I, at that time, I didn't have a great poker face. So it's just, I'm sure my whole, I'm sure everything just dropped. And it was very disappointing. It really, really was. Because I felt like this is the only way you see me. You can't, you don't get it. You're going to throw stand by me at me, but you can only see it through the lens of gangbangers? Really? And that was crushing. That was, that hurt. Yeah. That was rough. From time to time, David told me he still watches Riot, especially Galen's chapter. This is the piece that I can watch more often, more often than mine, more often than anybody else's, because it still resonates with me. Because it, I learned something. Yeah. That Riot exists. If he didn't do anything but make that movie for me so that I have a greater insight, then he won. A few weeks before I sat down with Harry Weiner, the executive producer of Riot, he was packing up his house, getting ready for a move. And he came across a letter Galen wrote to him after they wrapped Riot. With Galen's letter, there was a gift. The name of his um, story in the film of Riot was Chasing the Dream. He gave me a, a pocket watch that I'm sure he could ill afford with an inscription on it that said, um, thank you for helping me chase the dream. I'm so glad my uncle got the chance, at least once, to get his full vision on screen. But I can't help but think about all those other scripts that have sat in that box for so long that never got to see the light of day. That's the challenge of the creative life. We might have one, one at bat, you know, but with every at bat that we're provided, swing for the fences. If he could look down right now and see what you are doing, he'd realize that what he had aspired to achieve is being realized through you. I recently asked my dad why I wasn't allowed to watch Riot when I was little. He said he didn't remember it like that, that my mom and him were pretty chill. I mean, they did let me watch Seinfeld. The more he thought about it, though, he recalled my mom never really liked watching Riot. He's not sure why. I wondered if it was because of that final scene, if it reminded her too much of what it was like to lose her father. After spending all this time following my uncle's Hollywood career, I started to think about when he first came here. What was his Hollywood dream? Who was he writing his scripts for? Were they really intended for the big screen? Or was he maybe writing them for a smaller audience back home? As far as I know, my mom never read Galen's scripts. 
my aunts didn't either. I don't know how much they even knew about the real life my uncle portrayed in them. On the next and final episode of Magnificent Jerk, I bring Galen Scripps back to Oakland. I don't know what to think of it. I mean, yeah, because I don't. We don't know if it's fact or fiction or yeah, yeah, yeah. Magnificent Jerk is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Maya Lynn Sugarman. Our senior producers are James Kim and Eric Menel. Our producers are Melissa Akiko Slaughter and Maria Robbins Somerville. Our editors are Darby Maloney and Joel Lovell. Our senior engineers are Davy Sumner and Marina Pais. Mixing by Davy Sumner. Original music by Hannes Brown and Matthew Wong. Pineapple's head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Production assistance from Grace Chen, Himia Freeman, Gabe Kuwugale, Liz O'Malley, and Kristen Torres. Our cover art is by Joan Wong. Language and translation help from Judy Lay. It's All in the Game was written by Galen Ewan. The fiction and recreations in this episode are performed by Viet Huang, Clara Chung, Kit Cow, and Grace Lin. Special thanks to Auntie Esther, Auntie Joanne, Yo-Wei Shaw, Stuart Sugarman, and Aaron Williams. James Kim and I are executive producers. The executive producers from Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.